2: Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you... Yards, our father's children When snuff porn and pedo forms Begin to get top and rise, rise up when rise, famine rise, claims rise, millions When justice gives blind eyes to billions When the Lord's anger is no longer feared If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up, rise up, no rise matter up, if the prize rise. is high in the skies or deep, Peace. deep well, in Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk <laughs> Radio Network,
3: a program no that seeks to educate, inform, to and agitate on an the issue of 21st Century Legalized Slavery, hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Partis and die Black Talk, and talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. Scotty is having voice problems this evening, so Brother Otis Griffin will co-host with me tonight. Scotty is here, but relatively silent, trying to avoid losing his voice completely. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who helped to combat it. Today is the May 16th, 2018 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio in our last month of our sixth season. We've been around a minute. On and near this day in history, on May 16th, 1918, the United States Congress passed the Sedition Act, a piece of legislation designed to protect America's participation in World War I. Aimed at socialists, pacifists, and other anti-war activists, the, the Sedition Act imposed harsh penalties on anyone found guilty of making false statements that interfered with the prosecution of the war, insulting or abusing against the production of necessary war materials, or... Advocating, teaching, or defending any of these acts. Those who were found guilty of such actions, the state the act stated, shall be punished by a fine of not more than ten thousand dollars or imprisonment for not more than twenty years or both. You should remember that we are a nation which has been in a perpetual war for generations. Also, on may sixteenth, seventeen ninety two, Denmark abolished their slave trade, and on may thirteenth, eighteen eighty eight slavery was abolished in brazil one of those nations still has modern day slavery and human trafficking going on today and finally on may 13, 1985 the philadelphia city leadership and the philadelphia police department carried out an attack on a group of black radical individuals and families bombing and killing 11 people including five children the group was the move organization founded by john africa and emphasized family and life's connection to nature. The attack was carried out at the years of mounting tensions between the police and move. Listen, as always, we have far more information to share than time allows. So let's just cover what we can today and focus on the issue rather than the stories highlighting the issue. Trust me, you won't be disappointed and you will be moved. In direct action news, we want to remind you about the call for a Juneteenth 2018, the mobilization against prison slavery from SPARC this year. Supporters of Operation Push are calling on all opponents of mass incarceration and modern-day slavery internationally to honor the Juneteenth holiday, which is Tuesday, June 19th, with community organizing and direct action. Another reminder, a nationwide and somewhat international prison slave labor work strike is being called for on August 21st through September 9th. Angola prison has already begun. If you know someone inside, tell them what's going on. I want to give a shout out of congratulations to Newport, Rhode Island abolitionist J-9, aka Jessica Patrice Dorsey Coulter, on her graduation day tomorrow. I wish I could be there with you, Jay. I also want to let you know that myself, the late Mouadeen de Baja and a number of other North and South Carolina abolitionists have cameo of features on the new Netflix documentary, KKK, The Fight for White Supremacy. <laughs> yeah, I was as surprised to find out as you are. Dr. Will Boyd, candidate for U.S. Senate, Alabama, will be joining us briefly today in advance of his interview on June 6th here at New Abolitionist Radio. Shout out to Swift Justice of Unheard Voices and the Free Alabama Movement for his tireless work to bring these issues to political light and gain allies where needed most in legislation. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Levi Coffin, 1798 to 1877. He was known as the president of the Underground Railroad. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is John Bunn, convicted in an August 1991 killing Based on tainted evidence produced by ex-detective Louis Scarcella, Bunn was only 14 years old when he was arrested and jailed in the Crown Heights murder of Rolando Neischer. Prosecutors announced yesterday that they would not retry his case. Be sure to follow the information on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio as we talk about the stories And also support our efforts by joining the community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. That's community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. And finding the links on our abolitionist planning page. So let's get started. You got a question or a comment? You can call in tonight at 704-802-5056. And you can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Farthis. Usually I'd say, what's happening, Scotty? But today I'm going to say,
4: what's happening, Otis? How you doing, brother? Thanks for helping me out today. Uh, well, like my mentor, I'm hanging in here behind these, these enemy lines.
3: <laughs> How you doing? Uh, uh, man, it's, it's it's been a hell of a week for me. Yesterday was just mind-blowing. Wasn't it, Tribal? Like, so, oh, man, if you could be a fly on the wall of Casaparthas uh, Casa yesterday, your mind would have been blown, too, man. I can't say everything that happened here, but I can tell you a few things. One, I had a discussion with uh, Dr. William, uh, who will be on the program later on today. And it was a very fruitful discussion. You know, uh, he's uh, running for the Senate office, uh, the Senate seat that is vacant there in Alabama. And the brother seems to be an abolitionist. As a matter of fact, he told me, you know what, Max, if you want somebody on your side, I'm the man. I work in the prison industry. I go inside and I minister to the prisoners because he's also a pastor. He's like, I hear the stories all the time. I know it all. And he even talked about the 13th Amendment, not only on a federal level, but also on a state level in Alabama. Oh, and then the last part that really took it all home after, after that and the other things that I can't mention at the moment, but was finding out I was on Netflix. My daughter calls my wife. She's like, Will you tell Daddy he's on Netflix? I'm looking at him right now. He's on Netflix talking. Snap him and Muaydin and and, and all other guys. So uh, we had to go watch that last night, and that was that was kind of surprising but pleasant. The message is getting out, Max. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a little uh, surprised at that whole scenario. What they did was show a cameo of me at uh, South Carolina. When the racist KKK came down there, and instead of allowing them to uh, tear up our city and sit there and tell us about how they want us dead and they hated us, we ended up kicking their ass out of town. (laughs) And I gave a speech that day, and I was probably the first abolitionist since prior to 1865 to stand on the South Carolina Capitol steps and talk about ending slavery was a huge moment for me and, and, and a big moment in history i i suspect but that was what they showed a cameo of that and uh i shared that video so you can hear it in its entirety our new abolitionist radio so what's your week been like otis i, I seen you you're always busy learning and sharing information and disseminating information so what has your week been like
4: oh pretty much the same thing i try to I'm a little less combative now when I go into people's spaces, but I found out that so many people just don't want to understand that they've been duped about the 13th. And no matter how simple it is, when you say anything that comes after but or except means you negated everything that came before it. There's nothing complicated about that. Even children understand it. But adults seem to have this thing that they don't want to believe that they've been duped, that slavery never ended. It is that simple. Yeah, it is that simple. And it's
3: it's often frustrating to try to talk to people about it. You know, I was looking at a video earlier today, which we had put on New Abolitionist Radio, but I had never watched it. You know what I mean? So I had no comments for it until just recently. And what I heard on there was titled Nine Myths About Slavery That You Probably Never Knew. And at one point, the narrator said uh, he was comparing slavery to prison, and when he did that, he said just comparing those two is weird, as if it's not even possible. (laughs) Because he was talking about convict leasing and things like that, but in his mind, the narrator, it's impossible to imagine that the justice system is being used as a source of slavery and human trafficking allowed by the 13th Amendment.
4: Well, I, you bring it up, and I, I i think Scotty has heard me on a couple different programs. You call in, and you try to be respectful and just go by the actual wording of the 13th. And otherwise, bright people will tell you in a minute, well, you got that wrong. You're not understanding. It's not, not quite how it is. They did the crime. They ought to be in jail. And you go, oh, let's back that up before we get to the 13th. Do you understand someone who goes to jail because not being able to afford bail or bond hasn't been convicted of anything, so you're kind of conflating two things? That's like the entryway into the 13th. Once they get convicted, then they're slaves for sure. Right. It, it, they're being on the way into slavery. Oh, well, I'm, I I know lawyers. I know. I don't care who you know. They've been trained wrong. It's just that simple. It is
3: that simple. You're right. And it's a process. Uh, you know, and everything is like a trap. If you fall into this trap, now you're set up for this trap. And if you fall into that trap, and before you know it, you're in prison. And then before you know it, you're out of prison and back in prison and out of prison and back in prison. And some people go in four and five times a lifetime. Uh, recidivism rates are just off the charts. Close to 80%, uh, I believe, for state and like 50% for federal. It's, it's just crazy. In any case, I got about three videos I want to watch or I want the audience to hear with us today, uh, the at least the audio version of it. Uh, one is a speech that was given recently uh, by Jane Fonda, of all people, uh, but she really hammered a lot of the points we are making home, and she was speaking directly to white America. The other one is a uh, speech Or, you know, maybe just an opinion that was uh, given recently by Spike Lee uh, when talking about the new movie that's coming out uh, about the uh, black cop who joined the KKK. Uh, It's got a little bit of cursing in it, more than a little bit of cursing in it, but he's talking specifically to Donald Trump. And I thought it was very uh, profound, some of the things that he was saying. And then the third one, it just came out like an hour ago, and I I put together a real quick audio uh, snippet of it. But apparently in Houston, a 13-year-old boy was abducted by racist white supremacists and uh, Confederate supporters, and he was uh, missing for most of the day until one young lady happened to see him and, and see what was going on and rescued him from it. And then she speaks live on Facebook about her encounter and what she saw and she curses quite a bit in it, I most mean, of the my adult thing you're ever gonna hear. So in any case, let's start with the first video, which is going to be Jane Fonda speaking. ...most of my adult life, but
5: because I was white, I am white. <laughs> I realized that the lens through which I have been looking at race was too shallow. So I'm studying. Oh, here you, it, you see, it takes more than empathy, it takes intention to even begin to comprehend what people of color, no matter their class, face every day. And how much privilege, quite unconsciously, is enjoyed by those of us born white, even the poorest of us.
0: Imagine,
5: imagine, imagine, you're a single white mother of two. Maybe three sons working two, maybe three jobs just to make ends meet. You're constantly tired and stressed. You hope you'll manage to get them through high school in one piece. One's a pot smoker, but you think, well, I guess it's just normal teenage stuff.
0: You don't worry too much.
5: You pray that a promised... Rehab clinic will open in your town so that your other son, who is opioid addicted, can receive proper treatment in time. This is the white mother.
0: Now imagine you're a single
5: black mother with three sons, working two, sometimes three jobs. You're constantly tired and stressed. You wonder if you'll get your your son through high school at all because only 50% of young black males finish eighth grade. You worry that one's a pot smoker because prisons are filled with young black men found in possession of even a few ounces of marijuana. Where you live, armed police are a constant presence. You go through every day with the fear that one of your sons will be shot on his way home because he pulled a cell phone out of his pocket and no one will be charged mm, yeah. where you live young black men are by definition trouble mm, where you live all drugs are considered criminal activity addiction mm. in your community isn't considered a public health crisis oh, wow. or an existential identity no! crisis
2: oh, no.
5: No clinic is going to be built in your neighborhood. And if one of your sons is convicted for his small stash of pot and imprisoned, he's no longer eligible for food stamps, public housing, or student loans. He's forced to check a felon box when he applies for a job, which means he doesn't get hired. Having been in prison, he can be stopped and searched by police for any reason for no reason at all, Mm. and he can be returned to prison for the most minor of infractions. Because he's black, an ounce or two of marijuana means he is locked out of the mainstream society and economy for the rest of his life. Mm. Nor is it only your sons at risk, it's your daughters, Mm. it's yourselves. Women and girls of color are the fastest growing population within U.S. prisons. Mm. Outpacing men by more than 50%. None of this is an accident. It's part of a strategy. It's a strategy developed in response to the gains made by blacks during the civil rights movement just as the first Jim Crow was created in response to gains made by former enslaved people during Reconstruction. It's called the War on Drugs. And it's increased our incarcerated population from 500,000 in 1980 to over 2.5 million today. The War on Drugs has been intentionally designed to maintain a new racial caste system without ever being accused of racism. Oh, my, God. Oh, my, God. Oh, my God. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. Listen, Drop the mic. John Ehrlichman, Nixon's National Domestic Policy Chief, said about the administration's position on black people, quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be black, but by getting the public to associate blacks with heroin, And then criminalizing them heavily, we could disrupt their communities. Did we know we were lying? Of course we did. Unquote. Mm. White people need to dare imagine the realities inhabited by people of color. (laughs) Not only, not only because this is the moral thing to do but because we are, all of us, affected by racism. Institutional slavery stained our republic's founding, and systemic racism still saturates its soul. Mm -hmm. Slavery was, and still is, in its new form, Mm -hmm. a method of wealth creation.
4: Mm -hmm. That's why
5: racism and class hierarchy can't be separated. Amen. Enslaved people were the only property that propagated itself, producing more property, more enrichment. And that's why racism and sexism cannot be separated. Racism racism allows the 1% to deceive the white working class and poor people into believing that though they may be suffering... At least others are worse off. Racism is what keeps poor people and working-class whites from aligning with blacks to identify and topple their common enemy. Last week, the Legacy Museum on Peace and Justice, the first memorial to the victims of lynching, opened in Montgomery, Alabama. Ah. A white man was quoted as saying, they should just get over slavery. But it's still with us. With us, a variety of forms, both blatant and subtle. One new iteration is mass incarceration. Rounding up people of color by the thousands for alleged acts that are virtually ignored if committed by whites. Mm. Erasing those who are incarcerated in perpetuity from the national discourse. Making the incarcerated work for slave wages. Manufacturing products for our biggest corporations, Products that we buy without ever knowing where they came from. Building more prisons and filling them with black and brown people maintains the new racial caste system. All the while denying any of this is racist. Mm. We're told it creates jobs. We're told it stops crime. And it's easy for whites to believe that. And even easier for us to look away. But it doesn't stop crime. By shattering already fragile social networks, slicing apart families and creating a permanent underclass of desperate, unemployable Americans the war on drugs and mass incarceration, actually have done more to create crime. We had to to wage a civil war to end slavery. We had to forge a civil rights movement to end Jim Crow, at least formally. And now, we have once and for all to end the war on drugs and the construction of new prisons. And we must not ever again permit the replacement of one racial caste system for another, no matter how well-disguised. And this will necessitate... This will necessitate emptying the prisons of our own minds and treating and freeing the brave ideas and fresh solutions so long imprisoned there, and that's why I'm standing here with Patrice. Cullors. Come on, Patrice!
3: <laughs> Woo! There you have it, Otis.
2: Uh,
3: the latest story—I
4: don't know if you saw it over the weekend. Oh yeah, she covered it all, that's, uh I, I think some of the people missed the key words in it, like when she said. Uh, Jim Crow by statute, maybe, but still we practices in it in a different way. There's so much that she covered a lot in there. I'll let you have the first crack at it, though. Oh,
3: yeah. You would think that she is a listener of New Abolitionist Radio because not a thing she said in there has not been said here. <laughs> so she covered all the bases. The only thing she didn't talk about was the answer to slavery, which is abolition to treat it like a crime against humanity. She also is caught in the same loop that other people are caught in as they transition from thinking that this is something which can be reformed to thinking it's a crime against humanity. And she said, we should not permit uh, another system, another racist caste system to uh, evolve in our society. That's a little bit after the fact, you know, You, you permit it, it's here. It's the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth. How much bigger do you want it to get uh in the universe? Would that be enough? So permit it is way past the point. We're at the stage where we need to stop it. It's already here and uh she mentioned how probation is used uh to keep people cycling back and forth. My nephew just called me three days three, four days ago, and he spent. Uh, about 12 years of his life in prison. And he was released. And you know, they sent his ass right back about six months later for violation of probation because there was marijuana in his system. 12 years in prison, served his time, paid his dues for whatever crime he did, and then ended up right back up in because he had marijuana in his system. Where only one state away, it's frickin' legal. And he spent another four years in prison behind that. He called me, I just got out mo- uh, three months ago It's like, wow. So, yeah, that is one trap. And then the other thing that she said uh, is about these racist caste systems. See, that's a metaphor. People love to use metaphors for the things that are happening to us. But what we're dealing with is an ancient evil that already has a name. It keeps taking new names like Frederick Douglass said it would, but it's called slavery. And it's illegal through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. When the 13th Amendment was initiated with that exception clause in it, it was the first time that slavery was mentioned in the Constitution, and what it did was legalize it. It didn't abolish it. It made it legal, but not for the private citizen, only for the state and federal government. Well, you know what I want to do is open up the phone lines. Anybody that heard that speech, which was a profound speech, I got to give it up to her. She's the, the sister who also risked being charged with the Perdition Act uh, during the Vietnam War, Jane Fonda. So if you you heard that and you'd like to uh, comment or ask a question, feel free to call in. Uh, The telephone number is, just a second here. I should know it after six years, almost seven years of doing it. 704-802-5056. That's 704-802-5056. If you're already on the uberconference.com chat line, you can just press star, star to unmute yourself. So, Scotty, if there's anybody open up, just uh, go ahead and let them talk. And uh, remember to uh, mute yourself if you're in the background and talk. Any is there? Scotty, you can just type it in the chat room so you don't have to say nothing. I know your voice is killing you. See you. All right. So, oldest, go ahead. You said you'd give me the first shot at it. There you
4: go. I'm sorry. It seems that nobody wants to talk on it. What I was going to say, I, I've been reading over a couple of articles. You asked me what I do. I, I, I kind of put a notepad down and I just scoured through a lot of things. They're having a hard time with all of these drug testing companies with false positives and no way to verify that what they're reporting to the court is true. So, and you know as much as we talk about the the things that go wrong in this system it's kind of hard when you got somebody's life on the line and you tell them that they've tested positive they have no way of proving that they're innocent right no way no. at all
3: and it, they're even if they're not- yeah yeah, even if they're not innocent, it really doesn't matter. It's freaking weed, man. It's legalized in a dozen different states. They're moving towards a federal legalization of it. Can't you just leave them it, it, people like that the hell
4: alone? You're well, destroying well, lives over a plant. Well, you know that, that when we talk about the specifics in the language, there's another thing that I keep trying to bring up, and, and I don't like to to pick at it too much. We're talking about legalizing marijuana, but most people don't understand. They're legalizing if you buy from a registered pharmacy or, but not that you can grow it in your yard. A few states have exceptions for getting permits, but you can't just randomly grow pot and smoke it. These people, they're they're making you have licenses to buy. And then some states you can't even, uh, not in every state though. That, Scotty, I see what Scotty put in the, in. the. My point is, it's not a blanket thing that you can you can do it. You have to know state and local laws to be able to grow marijuana. Well, you
3: know, I don't want to make this a conversation about marijuana. That is a part of what she talked about. But this is a system where that is just a component involved in it. You know, just last year, more people were arrested for marijuana possession than all violent crimes combined. And that just gives you a An inkling of just how bad and how terrible and destructive this system is. There's a news report that just came out recently, May 13th, from uh, Jibaloff and Sahil Chinoy out of the New York Times. And they talked about uh, the the discrepancies in marijuana arrests in New York. I want to share some of that. And then I want to go to a video after I share some of this article where it tells you also about something she mentioned. Uh, about prison slave labor and what uh, prisons now are about to use their captive workers to do. It's amazing. But let me start with this interview. Actually, this article, I'm sorry. It says, they sit in courtroom pews, almost all of them young black men, waiting their turn before a New York City judge to face a charge that no longer exists in some states possessing marijuana. They tell of smoking in a housing project hallway or being in a car with a friend who was smoking or lighting up a black and mild cigar. The police mistake for a blunt. There are many ways to be arrested on marijuana charges, but one pattern has remained true through years of piecemeal policy changes in New York. The primary targets are black and Hispanic people across the city. Black people were arrested on low level marijuana charges at eight times the rate, eight times times the rate of white non-Hispanic people over the past three years. The New York Times found Hispanic people were arrested at five times the rate of white people. In Manhattan, the gap is even starker. Black people there were arrested at 15 times the rate of white people. How can you not think that is not destroying an entire people when you're doing that? Anyway, With crime dropping and the police department under pressure to justify the number of low-level arrests it makes, a senior police official recently testified to lawmakers that there was a simple reason for the racial imbalance. More residents in predominantly Black and Hispanic uh, neighborhoods were calling to complain about marijuana. So they're saying we're ratting ourselves out. An analysis by the Times found that fact did not fully explain the racial disparity. Instead, among neighborhoods where people called about marijuana at the same rate, the police almost always made arrests at a higher rate in the area with more black residents, the Times found. In Brooklyn, officers in the precinct covering Canarsie arrested people on marijuana possession charges at a rate more than four times as high as the precinct that includes Greenpoint, despite residents calling 311, the city's helpline, and 911 to complain about marijuana at the same rate. Police data shows the Canarsie precinct is 85% black. The green point precinct is 4% black mm. in Queens. The marijuana arrest is more than 10 times as high as the precinct covering Queens village as it is in the precinct that serves forest Hills. Both got marijuana complaints at the same rate, but the Queens village precinct is just over half black. While the one covering forest Hills has a tiny portion of black residents and in Manhattan, Officers in a precinct covering a stretch of Western Harlem make marijuana arrests at double the rate of their counterparts in a precinct covering the northern part of the Upper West Side. Both receive complaints at the same rate, but the precinct covering Western Harlem has double the percentage of black residents as the one that serves the Upper West Side. I'm going to read this last part, and then you can catch the rest of it on New Abolitionist Radio. The Times analysis combined with interviews with defendants facing marijuana charges, lawyers, and police officers, paints a picture of uneven enforcement. In some neighborhoods, officers expected by their commanders commanders to be assertive on the street, seize on the smell of marijuana, and stop people who are smoking. In others, people smoke in public without fear of an officer passing by or stopping them. Black neighborhoods often contend with more violent crime, and the police often deploy extra officers there which can lead to residents being exposed to more uh, more to the police. More cops in neighborhoods mean they're more likely to encounter someone smoking, said Jeffrey Fagan, a Columbia Law School professor who also advised the Times on its marijuana arrest analysis. That's the end, uh, as much as I want to read right now. Uh, Otis, anything, any comments on that? Not really, other
4: than... I've been reading a lot. I saw where Scotty put a few things in there talking about, yeah, you can you can smoke across the country. My point is there is no blanket carte blanche you can smoke. You have to know the laws in your particular area. And, and a few congressmen put up a bill about proposed about a month ago trying to make it so that if you cross state lines into a state that doesn't allow smoking, that as long as you're passing through, like on a freeway, you can't be arrested. That shows you the hodgepodge that's going on. And my point is, poor people are still going to get caught up unless something is done about this, because we see how the system works, the same way the bail system works. You can say what the law is, but once you're thrown in jail, you're in the system.
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, um... Scotty, you, myself, and the other hosts of New Abolitionist Radio and the callers have all been made aware of events happening across this nation. In every state, we report on the instance. We followed what was going on in New York over the past five years or so. And I can tell you some of the stories just uh, in short of what's happening in New York at one point. Police officers from several precincts came out and admitted on live television that they're hunting people like prey. That's what they call them. You're the prey and we're the hunter. And they go after the most vulnerable because they feel like they're being pressured to fill quotas. And they are being pressured to fill quotas. There was even one officer who was a a whistleblower who taped his commanding officer telling them to go out and arrest more black and brown people. Telling the officers to go and do this. Uh, We've also reported on the incidents that occurred when the police department or the police force in New York City went on what they called a uh, strike and stopped arresting arresting low-level drug dealers and possessions and giving out fines and fees. They were forced to go back to doing that by the, uh, uh, I believe it was Bratton who told them that they had to go back because the city was losing $10 million a week in revenue. Yeah. not because the people were wrong and needed to be arrested but because the city was losing 10 million dollars a week in lost revenue without these excessive fines and fees and minor arrests those are just some of the things and we won't even begin to talk about uh, you know what the police union has said in New York and how they treated the mayor of New York you've all seen that with your own eyes so we're talking about a place where this is rampant as if it were as bad as 1850 South Carolina. All right, so what I want to do now is it was another thing that Jane Bonda mentioned, and she was talking about how these prisoners are working behind bars. There's a video I asked Scotty to queue up. I, I, I think he has. I think I heard him start to play it. In any case, it will tell you one of the things that they're uh, doing right now. Scotty? Out there on the road.
5: And this morning, as part of our commitment to help you navigate the challenges of growth, we're looking at how some highways are paying for repairs and expansion.
2: Yeah, that once ridiculed as the uh, ridiculed as the road to nowhere, E four seventy now mm-hmm. connects nearly fifty miles of Colorado roadway.
5: But soon, the Public Highway Authority will connect Colorado prison inmates to your license plates. Denver 7's Amanda Del Castillo has
0: our look at what's to come.
6: If we wait until it hits it; it's too late.
0: Growth has hit us. Not only is growth putting more people in our cities and on our roads, but it's impacting business.
6: I
3: think we might have lost the connection there for a moment.
1: Yeah, I'm having issues with that website, man. might be better to read the article because that's the second time it's done that. Let me try it again. Hold up.
3: All right. Let me uh, pull the article up and read it to you. Uh, Aurora, Colorado, E-470 was once ridiculed as a road to nowhere, now tolls, roads, roads managed by the Public Highway Authority, connect nearly 50 miles of our state roads. Soon E-470 will also connect Colorado prison inmates to your license plates. Denver 7 spoke with E-470 Executive Director Tim Stewart about the change and why he feels it's a necessary move. Stewart points to our state's rapid growth. If we wait until it hits us, it's too late, he says. Not only has growth put more people in our cities and on our roads, but changed our impacting business. Referring to E-470 specifically, Stewart said we are maxed out in the physical spaces that we can put people in this building. So E-470 is upgrading its technology and outsourcing tasks like license plate validation. Remember that word, outsourcing. When you hear it, what they're referring to is in opposition to insourcing where we would uh, send out our services to other nations to do it for slave labor. Now, uh, insourcing, we're doing it here in this country with the prisons. Anyway, it goes goes on to say the computer says it was ABC 123, but it was ABO 128, Stuart uses as an example. A group of more than 80 people have physically input and verified those changes. In fact, they reviewed 73 million images just last year. According to E470, who, those contracted to work in image reviews spend 5.8 seconds on one image, which with an accuracy rate of 99.93%. However, as Colorado continues to grow, so will the volume of license plate images moving through toll lanes. Therefore, more people are needed to get the work done. It's a job opportunity, right? Soon, the task will go to prison inmates. From Colorado Department of Corrections Division's Corrections of Industries. Stewart explains if all goes well and we don't encounter any complications, we will look to either go live next week or the following week. Stewart called this a win win situation because E 470 doesn't have to pay to expand its building, and CCI inmates get the opportunity to build life skills. What a load of crap, man! Regarding any concerns, Stewart says inmates will only have access to license plate numbers for the sake of verification. You can read the rest on New Abolitionist Radio and uh, check the video or just read the article. But man, so now they got inmates who are going to be looking for more people to become inmates to be able to (laughs) fill the jails and prisons in Colorado even more. And, you know, they ain't paying these people. But, you know, what they tell you, it's life skills you're learning. You're learning how to work every day as if you never did.
4: Otis? Well, I'm just saying you, you're you looking at life skills, but they're going to handle sensitive information, and you're going to trust that nothing's going to happen to that information either.
3: That seems to be the only concern on their side of defense, yeah, that uh, people may be concerned about prisoners having access to their uh, license plates, even though it's only 4 or 5.9 some odd seconds. On the other side of the fence, though, I think the concerns are more along the lines of slave labor. Well, Is it you, jobs? Because they can't get the same job once they leave the prison.
4: <laughs> that's,
3: that's right, I mean, because they're using prison of slave labor only. That's why they don't have to expand their building, they said. We could just use this pool of free labor right here. Well, that's what Jane Fonda was referring to. And that's just one small instance of it. You know, the state of Louisiana just approved prison labor of four cents an hour for state construction projects. And if that's not slavery, then what is? I mean, what are you doing? You got these prisoners out here working at four cents an hour, which you take out of their commissary to pay for everything that you say they owe you throughout the day. Doing jobs that people make 20 and $30 an hour doing, and you'll have one or two supervisors who will get paid $80,000 or 100000 a year supervising all these, predominantly is going to be Hispanic and black men, supervising all of these minorities who are working at $0.04 cents an hour. And this is the law allowing this. Feel free to jump in anytime, Otis. And if you're also in the chat room and you'd like to uh, say anything, just press star, start to unmute yourself and go ahead and talk, and uh, we'll hear you.
1: Max, how come the labor unions are all quiet on this, man? Remember when we went to um, the event in South Carolina where we gave that class on uh, media? Um, Yes. But, um, you know, we talked to the people, one of the labor union guys and I, I just I just find it counterproductive to their mission that they're not speaking out on this. These are like like union jobs, man, in some states. And I if if Amendment T had a passed in California, this would not Colorado. be possible.
3: Right. Right. Exactly, Scotty. If Amendment T had a passed in 2017, which is a voter initiative to remove the exception clause from the Colorado State Constitution, which allows for slavery, it almost passed. If it had a pass, something like this could be challenged in court as slave labor. Man, you, you, that's a good point, Scotty. Uh, Otis, anything else on this? No, I. You got it. <laughs> you nailed it. Well, I'd also like to remind people again that there is a prison labor slave labor work strike scheduled not only across the country, but we want, uh, or they want, the prisoners are are putting this together themselves. They want people across the world to participate. So if you're a prisoner in Brazil, if you're a prisoner uh, in any other nation like uh, Australia or wherever it may be, and you're forced to perform daily labor for uh, pennies or nothing at all, stop. As of Uh, August 21st up until September 9th. And September 9th is the anniversary of the Attica uprising. So uh, keep that in mind. And if you know anybody who's inside, let them know. That includes jails, detention centers, anywhere where people are held captive and used as free labor. You are to stop working on August 21st. All right. Well, we're coming up on a break in about 15 minutes. So I think we can cover a couple more things. Uh, Otis, was there anything that you wanted to cover this week in particular? Because you know the plate
4: is full in our uh, planning page. Oh no, not really. I I was just kind of tagging along with you. I, you got me at a short notice, and I had my I was researching some other stuff, so I just kind of tag along with you. Well, I, I I hear that, brother. I hear that, and as you're one of those people who's
3: always ready, <laughs> you know, I mean, always ready, uh, just like myself. One of the things that has really bothered me that happened recently is a murder that happened in Detroit, a police murder. And, uh, you know, I I watch about two or three snuff films every day. I must see about nine to 12 every week. And uh, it, it, it changes you. You know what I mean? This is like real trauma, but not anywhere near as the trauma that is held by the families of these children who have been murdered by police. The latest one is a child by the name of Damon Grimes, a 15-year-old boy, unarmed and nonviolent. He was riding a four-wheeler in Detroit when an officer in a vehicle literally pulled up beside him while the car and four-wheeler were going full speed and tasered him in the face while he was riding it. Damon, uh, of course, crashed into a truck and died. Uh, The crash shattered his skull. The officer... Who did this had 40 40 use of force incidents in four years not one not two 40 of them it was only a matter of time before he murdered somebody the footage that was released uh shows the incident after uh the kill and some of it prior to the kills matter of fact they've got 25 hours of footage to see this 15 year old boy be murdered by this cop and the killing isn't the worst part the worst part is after they murdered, him. they just stood around chatting about it. One guy said, you know, if you want to act wrong, you're going to have to fucking deal with it. And uh, then he said he, he's got no sympathy for this boy whatsoever, uh, basically saying he deserved to die. And then one officer said, hey, should we uh, uh, lead the ambulance to the hospital to get it there quicker? And the cops like, hell no, we only do that for cops. Uh, we're not going to do that for this uh, kid here. I mean, it, it was just terrible. Um, I would normally say, let's listen to the news video, but I don't want to put this trauma on you. I just want you to know that it happened. And if you feel like you want to look it up, we'll provide it. We'll provide it on new abolitionist radio. Scott, you was trying to pull it up?
4: No, I think that
3: All right. So anyway, if you want to look it up, his name is Damon Grimes, 15-year-old boy. And, you know, they always assume that our our children are somehow some monsters that's going to kill everybody. This boy was like, I believe, six foot tall, like 200 pounds. So he looked like a grown man, but he wasn't a grown man. He was a kid, 15 years old. Size doesn't make you grown. But they always look at us like that that way. And the guy that killed him, just so you know, was a black cop. That's who killed him. That's the one that said all the terrible stuff about
4: it, too. And if you feel like you want to listen, it'll be on New Abolitionist Radio. Yeah, Um, if I'm not mistaken, is he the one that the city had already paid out something like $900,000 in restitution on some of his cases? I read that article, I think, when you posted it.
3: Yeah, it's. Uh, he was in another department where he had uh, space
4: violations and things like that. Yeah, they, and they already settled almost $100,000, uh, almost a million dollars total in in the cases he was involved with. Paid out.
3: And these are the people, the police departments, who expect us to trust their judgment of character. You're the yes. best judgments. you have the best judgment of character in the whole world, don't you? You just know who are criminals and who aren't, and you stop and Frisk everybody in sight who's darker than you are. <laughs> but you can't even tell when there's a murderer in your midst. Or maybe it's just that you don't give a damn that there's a murderer in your midst. You just go ahead and wait till he kills somebody, and then you act on it. And, you know, the biggest thing for the police about this was not that the boy was murdered or anything like that. You know what the biggest issue with the police? He violated uh, department policy by firing a weapon in a moving vehicle at another moving vehicle. That was their issue.
4: Right. Not that he took a life.
3: Right. And the the root in their article about it talks about, you know, they basically say this is just proof that cops give no Fs about our lives whatsoever. We are expendable to them. We are just, you know, something that you could just murder and toss in a ditch
4: somewhere and walk away and nobody would ever do a damn thing about it. Well, I'll tell you, Max, after reading through a lot of information on that Baltimore Gun Trace Task Force, the fact that cops actually have what's called qualified immunity is just a get-out-of-jail-free card. I understand now why they aren't convicting them. They have what's called qualified immunity. So they're, they're completely different than any of us if we commit a crime. They do it under the color of law. It's all done under the color of law. Oh, no. Yes.
3: That's, that's how it's all being done under the freaking cover of law. Um, there's another under the cover of law murder that just happened as well. And this was uh, on the 15th. This came out uh, from Black Voices. It says the death of Keevan Robinson, Black Louisiana man in police custody, ruled a homicide. So apparently, They are charging these officers with homicide. The officers who took Robinson into custody have reassigned pending an investigation. I bet you they probably sent him over to the youth detention facility because that's what they did with the cop with Lawrence Myers. Um, The death of a black man in police custody in Louisiana has been ruled a homicide by asphyxiation, a coroner said Monday. Kevin Robinson, 22, died Thursday at a Jefferson Parish hospital following a car chase with deputies who said he was a suspect in a narcotics investigation. Robinson left his vehicle following the chase and jumped several fences before he was caught by four Jefferson Parish police officers, all of them white. A struggle ensued. Robinson was taken into custody and later died. During a Monday press conference, Jefferson Parish coroner Dr. Jerry uh, Siviranovic, announced that Robinson's death had been ruled a homicide. Robinson died due to compression, compressional asphyxia from injuries to his neck. Uh, this initial medical classification does not take into account whether the homicide was an intentional act, accidental act, or the act incidental to a law enforcement action. Jefferson Parish Sheriff Joseph Lopinto said in a statement, he added that the FBI Civil Rights Task Force Is also looking into the matter. Wow! Do you hear how they describe what they just did? Like you know, it might have been the initial medical classification. Don't take into account whether the homicide was intentional, accidental, or just because the cops were using the chokehold they're supposed to use, and he just happened to die. This is why I had to stop doing couple of segments man like the slave catcher chronicles that we did on a regular basis which we do again now it just becomes too much after a while hearing these stories about these brutal sadistic fascist bastards going out there murdering people and you don't know who's who you could have cop of the year a standing on your left cop of the year right b standing on your right and it's very likely that one of them is a, a killer, a frickin' murderer who will kill you without a second thought. And I say cop of the year because here on New Abolitionist Radio, we've reported on at least a dozen police officers of the year who were later put in prison for being corrupt. Again, it goes back to police's ability to be a righteous judgment of character.
4: Anything? Those are just the uniform cops. I think I read an article saying New York City has somewhere around 900 to 1,000 undercover cops on, out on active duty every day. And they do something like a third of the actual shootings.
2: A third.
3: And the off-duty police, too, are also often involved in these killings. We just saw one recently where, I forget what it was, and I'm not going to look for the video right now, but most people have probably heard of it where the guy was buying a pack of Mentos and there was an off-duty policeman behind him who thought that the man stole the Mentos from the gas station counter, pulled out his gun and cocked it, and then started accusing Mm -hmm. this guy of stealing and demanding he give it back only to to find out that he had paid for it in full already. A freaking pack of Mentos. He pulled his gun out and cocked it, It, an off-duty officer, and was about to murder a man over some freaking breath mints. Slave mm-hmm. Catcher Chronicles, man. Well, got about five minutes left uh, before we take our first break. Um, I- I'm not going to do two more of the Slave Catcher Chronicles, but there is one that I want to get out. You mentioned it earlier. I could probably do it in the five minutes prior to that. Um, that would be the breaking news that came out of Baltimore uh, Friday, May 11, 2018 a former sergeant with the Baltimore City Police Department, has been sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. He's been sentenced to 15 freaking years. United States District Judge Catherine B.C. Blake sentenced Sergeant Thomas Alters, Alters to 15 years in prison, followed by three years of supervised release for racketeering, conspiracy and racketeering offenses, including nine robberies. Now, think about this. We're talking about a sergeant in the Baltimore Police Department who was also tied to the Baltimore uh, Gun and Drug Task Force. That Those are also being investigated as well. And if this guy got 15 years, it's very likely that more than a few of them will see time in prison. And this was out here uh, robbing and stealing and planting guns on people to the point where at, at, at one point just recently, it was exposed that these police are often carrying extra guns on them or even toy guns on them in order to plant on people's bodies. Amazing, man. Like,
4: what kind of world are we living in? Otis? Well, yes, you know, we started covering this almost a year ago, I think. And, you know, one one of the gentlemen got involved in this, well, that was going to justify, actually got assassinated the day before he was supposed to testify. And when we were tracking these people, this particular guy was actually in charge of the force, and they had pictures of him and several of them spending their money at some of the games, at the professional sports games, football and basketball, season tickets. And and I read up toward the end of this, a couple of these guys actually got off on technicalities. The judge let them go. So at least two of them won't be doing time.
3: Wow. It's amazing, man. Entire police forces. And, you know, we don't really think about all the people that they've affected throughout their career. I don't hear any cries of, for investigations into their career arrest to find out that these liars, cheats, racketeering professionals who do all these terrible things have done that to citizens throughout the, uh, the uh, city of Baltimore. I, I'm and not he, hearing that. There was it, a few. That
4: up, that you on. know, they were actually connected to drug running and guns in Philly. So <laughs> there there was a direct correlation to this task force and guns and, and drugs in Philadelphia. So, you know, it's more than just those nine people that's bad in those two police forces. Yes, sir. What I'm going to do, Otis, is I'm going to shift
3: course on the other side of the uh, station identification break. So we're going to take a break now, and when we come back on the other side, we're going to try to put these pieces of the puzzle together for you in a historical context. You're listening here to at new to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, and we'll be right back after these
0: messages. I'm not a writer. Okay.
1: Black Talk Radio, since 2008, providing new black media for the masses.
3: And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. As I started, uh, as I told you in the very beginning, and I say it every week, we talk about modern day slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So how, how do we come to what we're saying here today about this all being slave catchers, slavery, and things like that? It's really, you have to look at it in a historical context. Remember, in 1865 and 1863, respectively, the Emancipation Proclamation And the 13th Amendment came out, which allegedly abolished slavery. Our story of it, which is the facts, you can check it for yourself, is that it did not end at that point, that the exception clause they put into the 13th Amendment actually legalized slavery for the first time and allowed state and federal uh, prisons to use free slave labor to rebuild the South. One of the points in history people rarely ever talk about is convict leasing. Convict leasing is really the key, the missing key to what's happening right here. Immediately after 1865, in 1866, the first state prison was built right here in South Carolina. And within two years, all across the South, prisons that had already been built and were filled 90% black went to 90%. I mean, were filled 90% white, went to 90% black in just a couple of short years. They uh, were leasing these black men, women, and children out to private companies like the mining industry and the iron industry and uh, various different uh, industries for pennies on the dollar. And uh, that was the new slavery that they uh, created. And then after that, it went all the way up to 1928, when Alabama was the last state to allegedly, I keep saying allegedly because it is, they claim it, but it's not true. Alabama was the, uh, the last to allegedly... And convict leasing, after a cave-in killed like 128 men, women, and children, uh, that was replaced though, and they had already they had already created a replacement before they ended it. They always do that; they create a replacement before they ended it. Convict leasing uh, existed prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, and then after convict leasing, they had the chain gangs, and then after the chain gangs, they went right back to what they call insourcing with companies like Unicor, which is a government-owned corporation that rakes in a billion dollars a year just from prison slave labor where they're doing what we just let you hear earlier uh out in colorado they've got these inmates doing all these different jobs not paying them anything whether it be firefighting in california watching license plates in at toll booths in colorado or even uh creating things that you use on a regular basis on the outside like Providing the uniforms for McDonald's and Burger King, or the cardboard cups that you use at Starbucks, or you know, even at one point they were creating underwear for Victoria's Secret at twenty-eight cents an hour. There's an article that just came out recently, and it's much more than an article. In my perspective, it is a work of freaking art, and it's called "It Didn't Pump Itself." It's by Ariel Aberg Reger, March sixteenth, or uh, two thousand and seventeen. And I wish you should go go to New Abolitionist Radio right now and open the link so you can see the visuals that she provides. In addition to the text that gives it all context, uh, this post is part of a City Lab series on power, the political kind, the stuff inside batteries and gas tanks and the transformative might of mass movements. And then it begins with the imagery saying at the turn of the 20th century, coal was the predominant power source in the United States. It was blasted, scratched, mauled, and hauled out of the earth by hand. It cooked our food. It heated our homes. It powered our factories. It fueled our trains and forged their tracks. It was the black heart of America, and it didn't pump itself. By the early 1910s, three-quarters of a million coal miners were clawing half a billion tons of coal out of the earth. The vast majority of coal country was in the North, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, and West Virginia. But Birmingham, Alabama, was one notable exception. Nicknamed Pittsburgh of the South, Birmingham was home to the Tennessee Coal Iron and Railroad Company, one of the largest coal mines and coke production facilities in all of the South, and for a time, the second largest steel producer in the country. TCI, as it was known, was widely profitable. Period accounts attribute the company's booming success to the sage, energetic, and accomplished entrepreneurial white developers of intrepid and public spirit who capitalized upon the admirable richness of the coal flora of Alabama. But the true key to TCI's profits lay in a deadly contract with the company managed to negotiate with the state of Alabama in 1888. Alabama, deep in debt, and struggling to keep up with an industrialized North after the Civil War, was clamoring for ways to increase revenue. So free young Black men were rounded up by idling and walking and talking and being Black, much like you hear today, under loosely defined vagrancy laws. Back then, the accused had to pay the, uh, their own court fees. Wow, the accused had to pay their own court fees. So by the time they ended up in jail, which they invariably did, they owed the state money. Alabama couldn't squeeze revenue out of black men by clothing and feeding and sheltering them, so it started to lease them out to private companies like TCI. The contract TCI signed with Alabama got it to lease all of its state prisoners and half of its county prisoners to the company, 90 to 95 percent of whom were black men. TCI paid Alabama a set monthly rate for each one, depending on physical ability, and took over their care. To ensure that they made good on the investments, however, care was as minimal as possible to keep the asset alive and laboring. The young black men were sent into the TCI mines and paid 30 cents a day, a rate so low it could take eight months of hard labor to pay off a three-week sentence. Conditions were ravishingly hellish. In the descent, in the descending into an actual pit of despair, sense of the word, the men worked 13 to 16 hour days, waking in darkness, working in darkness, sleeping in chains in darkness. Explosions and disease ripped through the mines. Many died before their sentences were up. Many sentences were extended by bo- mine bosses who kept experienced prisoners on by writing fake bad conduct reports. I bet you there's people in prison right now who are going through that same thing prior to parole. Many men were sentenced to slavery nearly half a century after it has been abolished. Convict leasing was a windfall for Alabama. With the state raking in hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, it was a boom for TCI, which became so powerful and profitable that in 1907 it was bought by its largest competitor, U.S. Steel who immediately started heavily taxing the company's incredibly low-priced exports so that they wouldn't compete with Northern coal and steel. And so arrests continued to spike. And young black men continued to try and scratch themselves out from underneath Birmingham. Literally underneath Birmingham. Then, on a spring morning in 1911, TCI's Banner Mine exploded. 128 men were dead in an instant the largest loss of life in Alabama mines to date. All but three, all but three of them were black prisoners. The following year, TCI changed management and finally stopped recycling, uh, relying on leased labor. Alabama, however, stepped in and started running the prison mines directly. The state stepped in and started running the prison mines directly. The state made $1 million off of them in 1912 alone, scooping up young black men off the street, slipping them into chains, and sliding them into the earth to harvest the black diamonds that pro- produced a third of the tax revenue for the entire state. Alabama was the very last state to abolish convict leasing in 1928. Today, Alabama incarcerates almost 50% more people than the national average. Its inmates are still disproportionately black men. And that is The End of That by Ariel Aberg Reager. And like I said, it's a work of art if you look at the imagery. Any comments, gentlemen? Otis? You may be on mute, bro. All right, well, again, if you'd like to oh, make sorry. a question oh, or a comment, you
4: have like would, to make a question or comment,
3: just unmute yourself. Go ahead, Otis, I'm sorry.
4: Oh, yeah, I was just saying to you, I think we talked about that early in the week on on Facebook, saying I wish there was a way to actually put that in motion because it the, the pictorial and the words are, are done so well. She did an excellent job. Matter of fact, I sent her a compliment on her uh, Twitter account based on how accurate that was because, you know, it kind of sees it in your mind. And the main thing I wanted to say is that you, you noticed that the, the state went from making about eleven to $12,000 originally when it first started to well over a million dollars. As a matter of fact, a couple of different articles I read that said that was anywhere from 30 to 40% of the state's total income. For, so the bulk of the Alabama's income was on slave labor, convict leasing
3: exactly uh and that convict leasing, as they pointed out went on in 1928 but it didn't end in 1928 because South Carolina was doing it all the way up until the 1960s they just weren't calling it uh, uh convict leasing anymore but they were doing it just like well, they do we right know now the states today of um, it has changed that occurred in income. The the change that occurred With convict leasing though Happened somewhere around The Clinton administration Where they realized that they didn't actually Have to make these people work All you had to do was set up a corporation Allow people to invest in it uh, Across the globe And then go collect bodies And put them on shelves And they became uh, what what we knew as Warehousing of bodies So the arrest rates were uh, spiking And going through the roof but they weren't working them to death. They were just putting them on a shelf. And for every oh, person yeah. that they had on a shelf, depending on what state you were in, you got X amount of dollars for it. So in New York right now, I believe Rikers Island is over $150,000 a year to incarcerate one person. So if they get you in Rikers Island and put you on a shelf, that's hundred and fifty dollars a year right there. Like Jane Fonda said, it's a job creator. It's an income creator. And they started doing that all across the United States for quite some time, including the jails. Many of these jails allow you to buy uh, jail bonds and invest in the jails themselves. So this went on and on and on. We didn't really see this rise in prison labor until uh, maybe about 15 or 20 years ago when they started getting greedy. And we don't just want your bodies on the shelf. Hell, we can get free labor just like we had back in convict leasing. And then they came up with this idea called insourcing, and they've been using it ever since.
4: And you can, if, if you actually look on the map now in the federal system, I had a sister that used to teach adult education back when they had education system that's like 30 years ago in the prison system. You can look and see that that's why they've done away with so many local jails because they've actually put up regional jails and the, the municipalities, like my county, they share the revenue. So, so they, they basically made it a derivative no longer do you have to have a local small time jail we just use a regional jail and we got a section for federal prisoners we got a section for those that are coming to go to court so it's big business it's just nothing about it's just totally about money
3: and, and that's I,
4: what he, yeah, a guy that worked that just retired from the one that's about five miles from my house he was some kind of a corporal there he was saying how they got it set up. So even a prisoner that might be brought in from another county that may stay there for two hours, they even have a system for how much money they make for him passing through that system.
3: Right. Exactly. There and is as all we,
4: money.
3: we reported here many times where we've had uh, evidence shown that the uh, state or the city or the county has directly communicated with the police department or sheriff's department and ask them just like they have done in Ferguson to increase the amount of revenue that they were generating through fines and fees in order to cover whatever expenses that they have going on. I mean they're just exploiting this this slavery. That's what it is, slavery. And there's a part that happens where you have to criminalize the people that you're incarcerating. You have to Uh, make everyone else not give a damn about them because they're so bad and they're so terrible and they're so this and so that, and you, you criminalize their lives and demonize them. And, you know, people are capable of doing that, like the sitting president that we have right now, who said just yesterday when he was talking about immigrants, these aren't people, these are animals. When you steal somebody's humanity like that, you're not offering an opinion if you're the president of the United States of America, those are marching orders, and you just told the people what the target is. They're not people. They're animals. Go hunting. Hunt the animals and kill them. And they do that. Now They have been doing that for generations uh, to black life, criminalizing black life, whether it be through the media over and over again or used as political tool like the Southern Strategy or like uh, the – George Bush Sr. did with this Willie Horton uh, uh, advertisements and things like that. It's just all about telling these lies to criminalize the people who are literally your victims. And what happens after that? We get into this uh, stage called victim blaming, where these are the people suffering, but it's all their fault. Even the KKK in the, vid- in the, in the new documentary, which we're in, uh, we heard them saying that too. Like They're saying the reason that we are what we are. The reason we're racist, the, we, the reason we're KKK, the reason we're out here doing what we're doing is because black people made us do it. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be doing this. It's always black people who did it to them. You're killing people like you did in Charlotte,
4: but we made you kill people. Well, Max, you're right. And the other part is doing more research is not just that they see it as the black people made them do it. Some of these, the, what do you call them, the guards that are making $9, 10 $15 an hour, they also have the ability because once you become a prisoner, it's no longer any rights. So when they write you up for any infraction, whether you instigated the infraction or not, you can stay in jail longer. You can come, You can be in jail for bail, for not being able to make bail, get an infraction in jail and get another case so they yeah. have the power over your over your well-being once you get inside those walls
3: and it's all under the cover of law it's all been legalized and legitimized and everybody agrees because you know they're animals they deserve it whatever you're doing to them
4: is just perfectly fine and I, I, mean, I want to say one other thing that's really been eating at me since I heard it about three weeks ago. I don't have anything against preachers and and people who are steeped in church but the belief that because someone goes to jail they are guilty just blows my mind. I don't what did you learn in a civics class? Being locked up or going to jail is not proof of guilt. Right?
3: It's not proof of guilt. Um you what did the 13th slogan say, or the, the film, the 13th, from slave to criminal with one amendment? That's all it took, one single amendment to turn people who were formerly enslaved now into criminals. And the convict leasing uh, system showed that is exactly what their intentions was and how it played out. And like I said about Jane Fonda, we're not talking about something that is happening or about to happen. We're talking about something that's been going on for 154 freaking years. This is not new, it's, but it is time to end it. Yes, but we got in industry. We got about 10 minutes before our next break. There, Otis, and uh, if, is there any stories that you want to squeeze in in the last minute? And I mean, last minute, and also, if you're, is that is that tag? Yeah, and also, if you're calling, you'd like to speak, just go ahead and uh, unmute yourself and say something. I think I heard Tag say something a moment ago. Peace, Peace. Peace, brother. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio again. Welcome
7: home. Much appreciated. I've been, um, I'm out and about right now, so pardon the background sound. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can hear you fine. No doubt. Um, yeah, so I've been out and about. I, I've been catching what I could of the, you know, discussion thus far. And I just, speaking of stories and, you know, what's been going on recently, I wanted to see if y'all had um, discussed or, you know, uh, peeped out this securist story that's been developing as far as this uh, securist telecom and, and the kinds of, um, you know, mass surveillance techniques that, you know, are are being exposed at present as regards uh, the Securist Corporation.
3: Uh, We haven't spoken about it, but the information is available in our planning page. We put it there for everybody to be able to see. But please tell us what's going on, because we haven't had a chance to speak about it tonight.
7: No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I'll just speak on what, what I, from what I can tell, like what I comprehend of what Uh, They have been doing, which is that um, they have gotten essentially carte blanche to surveil, to essentially tap the phone lines of not only anyone who's in contact with someone who is on the inside. um, As regards, I think I think it's three of the major telecoms that were uh, implicated in this story. Uh, you know, Verizon, uh, AT&T, uh, one of the others. But, you know, as, as we know, these, these, uh, these major corporations, you know, consolidate what they do. So it's just. The other massive, one is T-Mobile. Great. Look, right. That's right. T-Mobile. And so not only any and everyone who's been in touch with someone on the inside through those particular telecoms, but Anyone else that's involved somehow or another through, like you know, whatever devious contract they were able to figure out uh, with these, um, you know, various, uh, you know, corrections organizations, they they have access to the uh, to the location to the real time location of the users of those telecoms, regardless of if they've been in touch with someone on the inside or not. Now this goes it goes without saying that there's no valid reason as to why somebody being in touch with a loved one or whomsoever is on the inside should have their 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 locations monitored by some corporation or their third party cronies but even beyond that they took it a step further and just extended it to uh whomsoever you know deals with those particular phone companies so i i I, you know figure that might be worth kind of underlining in this discussion, you know, as part of the, the overall surveillance, uh, police state, uh, you know, uh, I- enslavement based, um, communication reality that we're living under out here. Right.
3: COINTELPRO part two, which is now called black identity extremism, uh, <laughs> it's basically the same thing all over again. And the article that you're referring to about Securus, says that Securus has contracts with hundreds of correctional and law enforcement agencies across the country, meaning that staffers at any of these agencies can track you on a whim. Uh, should they at least have a warrant or affidavit if they want to track your cell phone? Absolutely. But Securus isn't checking. What if you never talk to anyone in your in any correctional facility? Securus still doesn't check on that either. So basically, it can go beyond the prison industry. And, you know, I speak to maybe a half a dozen or... Uh, eight different prisoners on a regular basis. So I already know my phone has got more bugs in it than a roach motel. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I often tell people be careful what you say because
4: at any point, just like right now, we're live on the air. Well, basically what you're saying is they're doing the same thing that the, tele- that the other data collectors are doing because they started out as a debit card company that you first you could have had to be a family member because I actually worked with a telecom when they first started planning this stuff you used to have to be a family member then it became family and friends that could put it put it on a debit card so basically now what they're doing is using your friends contacts to trap to connect everything if you have a yes. digital phone they're going through your contacts this is the only other way they can do it
3: they're also doing it with the predictive policing if you're a visitor in a prison or a jail like they keep track of the visitors and they Create profiles of the visitors and in the film do not resist which tells wow. you how things are going to become that's when the uh, one person who helped to design this predictive policing system said that we can determine if your unborn child is going to be a murderer with a 50 percent uh uh 50 uh, percent chance of getting it right 50 percent chance of determining whether or not your unborn child is going to kill somebody and now they say they have to decide what to do about that. <laughs> and they do it by attracting the people coming in and out and creating profiles on them. Man, well, uh, we are about five minutes outside of our break. So anybody uh, wants to say anything, this would be a, a great opportunity for you to do it in the last five minutes. Just press star, star to unmute yourself. I was hoping uh, that the, uh, poss- the the brother running for Senator, uh, Dr. William. Uh, would call in this evening, but I don't think we're going to get him. He said he had a church today. He's a pastor as well. So he was going to try to call us afterwards. But again, if you have anything, say just press star, star to unmute yourself.
7: Uh, uh, Real quick, Brother Matt. Yes. So just off of what you just said, and, you know, the connectivity between, you know, the 48th, the, the, you know, state of Israel, um, as it's referred to, and what goes on out here, you know, what what you just described connects directly um, and thoroughly with a similar technology that's being used out there to um, to criminalize and and in fact incarcerate uh, Palestinians from a young age, uh, called faceception, wherein they essentially are using you know te- technology that sounds like it, it's out of you know a phrenology, You know, the the now discredited pseudoscience of phrenology that was used to criminalize us, you know, uh, back when, to um, ahead of time, so to speak, or as they proposed, predict the criminality of uh, often young Palestinians. And they mass arrested a, a, a good number, I want to say over 100 uh, Palestinian youth, uh, just a few months ago behind— this software, Faceception, you know, uh, predictive, predictive uh, criminality technology.
3: Yes. You you know, the gross national uh, product, the gross domestic product in the United States, to the best of my knowledge right now, is somewhere around $20 trillion. That's a huge number. Modern-day slavery and all the things that surround it have been, Estimated to be as much as $1 trillion a year, a 20th of the entire domestic product. And I still think that that number right there is still underrated. That is possibly much higher because we don't also include the international aspect of our American companies like the GEO. Uh, uh, peace. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. State your name, where you call from, and uh, your comment or question.
8: This is Brother Davis, man. I'm calling from... Uh,
3: hey, Brother Davis. Welcome home.
8: <laughs> hey, Brother. So listen, it's a great show. I really wanted to call to encourage you because I know it's daunting to see all of this here and, and do the research and realize that you're limited in what you can really even convey with understanding to other people. I, I, one of the main reasons why I called is because I want you to know that we are listening. Those who seriously want to see some change come about are about putting themselves in a position at least so that they can hear what the message is. And I'm going to tell you, man, it is dawning. I, I do understand that, and I do want you to, to know that we uh, we do care. I just did some major research on the, um, the uh, Tavis Stock uh, Institute and literally it's shattering. It's shattering. And all of this that you're talking about, abolition, really, all this is in here. All of this is in there. This is definitely, um, this is definitely a, a daunting task. But if not us, then who? If not us, then who?
3: I just want who? to add
8: that to you, That's Thank right, brother.
3: We, we all need that, uh, that affirm, affirming voice every now and then, somebody to lift us up and say, people are listening. Because, you know, it is a daunting task. We know exactly what we're dealing with. And we know that we're, Nobody from nowhere, with no resources, trying to be David against Goliath. But you know what? Goliath got hit in the head with a rock and fell down and got his head chopped off. And we almost did that on uh, August, I believe it was August the 9th, no, August 18th or 19th, around that time, in 2016, when Obama announced that they would no longer be using for-profit private prison contracts, that they would be reviewing those and the private for-profit prison stocks crashed to the freaking ground. And if Wall Street had not stopped trading that day, there wouldn't be a Geo Group or a CCA or CoreCivic right now. We almost killed them in one day. And if we could do that, I know we can get this done. <clears throat> well, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: program scheduling, visit us on the web at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com
3: Peace and welcome back to the new Abolitionist Radio. Thanks again Brother Davis for calling in. Uh, We appreciate you man. Indeed. Well, I got a couple of things I want to get out there but first I'm going to have to ask Scotty Reed a question. You can keep it simple with yes and no Scotty. I know you like to keep it family oriented, but I have this report from the woman who actually rescued that 13 year old child and it's uh, filled with profanity. I'm not going uh, to fake like it isn't, but she tells the story of what happened to her uh, basically today <laughs> and uh, how she saved this child. Would you be willing to play that? Or should we skip it? And just I mean, it if, on the,
1: if it's, it's got page? a lot, if it's got a lot of cursing in it, let's, let's just keep it family friendly. Uh, people at their own discretion can listen, because um, I'm sure you posted it to New Abolitionist Radio's pages. Um, but I do have that video queued up about the Angola inmates.
3: Okay, great. So what we'll do is we'll put the uh, the video of the report uh, on New Abolitionist Radio so you can check it out for yourself. In the meantime, there are two videos that I did want to play. One is the one you have from the Angola prison inmates, and the other one is from the South Carolina inmates. Uh, so let's go ahead and roll with it. The Department of
5: Corrections said this morning two inmates, Manuel Williams and Earl Harris, broke out of a security line on their way to work and allegedly attacked two officers. Williams broke his ankle in the process. Then more than two dozen other inmates in the line reportedly refused to work with at least one laying down in place. Officers report they were able to regain control and get everyone back into cells. We're told Williams and Harris could face additional charges for the incident.
3: That's it right there. Um, They're in Angola prison, which is basically a metropolis of its own. Uh, The space that Angola, which is named after the nation that provided the most slaves to the United States, Angola, uh, the space that they occupy is 28 square miles. We're talking about a a landmass larger than Manhattan Island. And it's nothing but a prison. And it's a, a very old prison where people literally are still picking cotton on a plantation inside the prison. They're also doing much uh, free labor work in other areas as well. They have already went on strike, and I think that they were pushed into it by incidents that occurred inside the prison with the guards calling them racial slurs and uh, threatening to kill them if they participated in such an event. But they had the courage to go ahead and do it anyway, and they've started early with the callers for August 21st. They're doing it right now. Uh, I've been speaking with some of the people out of Angola, and they're very serious about uh, trying to obtain just rights for themselves as human beings while inside this place. Not to be forced to uh, work for free, not to be subject to constant violence and oppression, uh, to have clean water, (laughs) a place to use the bathroom, to have just some kind of basic rights that everybody in the world is supposed to have. So that's Angola prison and the other one is out of South Carolina prison. One of the inmates out there managed to get a message out. And you know, we always I prefer to like to let them speak for themselves as often as possible. So Scotty, if you could go ahead and play that, we'll go straight to South Carolina.
6: They didn't really address the situation. They allowed inmates to continue to stab each other and, and chop each other in the head. No officer wasn't even on the present. No no chemical initial spray. You know, basically the officer just ran. They're uh, trying to portray uh, this situation as though it was about a contraband and cell phone. In, in, in reality, it wasn't. It was two gang members who had words with transpired, transpired and evolved into something uh, more serious. One thing about being in prison, you know what I'm saying, we've been, we've been denied many opportunities. We've been denied, uh, access to recreation. We've been denied access to, uh, education. You know, they, they're taking everything from us, uh, uh, neglecting us, you know what I'm saying? Just housing us, uh, 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 independent attention without no, no, uh, form of rehabilitation. And, uh, and so, you know, it, 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 sometimes you have to let the truth get out. Which they don't, they don't like the truth. And my concern is, uh, well, I be uh, murder next. Oh, out of a week, we might come out what one or two times. We're locked down all, all day, every day. We're not allowed with the kitchen. You uh, 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 the food is brought to us. You know, we're not allowed to, uh, uh recreation. You know, you got people in here suffering. You, you got people in here. You know, what I'm saying that really need help, mental help. You know, and uh, because there's a lot of individuals in here that's sick mentally you know, when you, when you, when you place an individual in a situation where they have no outlet, you know what I'm saying, they're frustrated, aggravated, irritated, this is the type of uh, situation you're going to have. But they don't care. They don't care. They just throw them in jail and let them kill each other. They don't care.
3: In his own words, calling from the inside to let you know what's happening in these prisons. And uh, we went in on the South Carolina prisons in detail not too long ago. Uh, you could uh, check our archives where we talked about all of this, including the poison water that they're being forced to drink out there. You know, who drinks brown water? What's in that brown water? But that's what they're drinking in South Carolina. It's uh, crimes against humanity. <laughs> wouldn't be the first time that uh, I have said these are instances where the National Guard should be called out to protect the, to protect the safety and well-being of the people who are being brutalized and, and, and subject to inhumane and Cruel treatment, crimes against humanity.
4: Otis, anything? No, I don't know what else to say about it. It's mind boggling to me that no one is, no one can find a way to put an end to this. I don't understand it. And and when I talk to people face to face about it, I keep hearing the thing, same thing. They should. Well, they're there. They shouldn't have committed the crime
3: and say, what does that have to do with treating a human with decency? I, right. I don't it, what does it have to do with treating a human being with decency? You know, Everybody that is in there is not in there for capital punishment, murder, rape, and all of that. Sometimes people are in there for things like tax evasion, not paying your fines and fees when they want you to pay your fines and fees on different things. You might be spending a year in there. And that year, like the brother said, you have to worry about, it. are you going to die today? Are you going to die today because you couldn't afford the $500 fee that was applied to you? Or because you had marijuana in your system and got violation of probation and sent back in there, are you going to die
4: today? That's a, a worry every single day. Right. And, then, and if, if even if you make it out with your life, you've still been poisoned the whole time you've been there as property of the state. It makes absolutely no sense.
3: None but it makes all the sense in the world when you look at it at it as modern day slavery and human trafficking which has been legalized uh, like the convict leasing when TCI took over the care of the prisoners they didn't have any interest in keeping them healthy at all they didn't care if they died there's a whole book written on it called one dies get another by Jay mancini and he says that convict the only difference between slavery and convict leasing is with
4: criminals so plentiful, they were seen as disposable. Disposable. The matter hasn't changed much now. We're looking at, we just did last week, states that are feeding inmates food that's already gone bad. And then finding out that some of these uh, people, like all the sheriffs and stuff all through Alabama and Georgia, are using food that's expired from food banks and, and keeping the money. And going off and building what buying boats and vacation homes, it makes absolutely yep. no sense. I don't understand why people aren't rising up as a matter of fact i I sent a message to a young man that's a lawyer down in Birmingham because we were doing some of that stuff, and a few of those jails are right around his his area and I've seen him on national t v He ignored me. I expect he'll probably block me because I'll send him some more man. Well, we're coming up on the twenty, uh,
3: the, the nine forty uh, mark, twenty minutes before the program ends. I want to get these last couple of segments in, and uh, on our rider of the twenty-first century underground railroad this week, uh, we have a video that we can play. Scotty, I put it in the chat room, so you can cue it up whenever you're ready. Uh, that will be as our rider of our of the twenty-first century underground railroad. His name is John Bunn, and he was wrongfully jailed at fourteen in the 1991 murder of correction officer. And uh, you can – they. the title says he cries while he's exonerated, but, I mean, that's acceptable. That's that's understandable. I mean, somebody stole your life from you, 14 years old. You spent 17 years behind bars for something you never did. And then they tell you, guess what, you're innocent. When you've been saying it for 17 years, of course you're going to cry because now your reality matches your thoughts. So, Scotty, if you got that queued up, go ahead and play it.
1: Uh, Actually, I don't, Max. I'm still waiting on New York Daily News to load up.
3: (laughs) Okay, sorry about that. Um, New York Daily News can be bothersome sometimes. And if you uh, don't have a subscription, you can't even see this stuff. (laughs) Like You get to see three a week, and then you gotta buy the rest. But there's too many news sources for that, really. Couldn't afford to have 20 different subscriptions to 20 different uh, papers that charge $12, 15 a month. It's crazy. You might
1: want to tell me the story while, while, while queue it um...
3: up if you want. All right. It says tears flowed down the face of newly incarcerated, uh, newly ex- exonerated Brooklyn man as he railed about the crooked process that stole 17 years of his life. John Bunn, convicted in August 1991. Killing based on tainted evidence Anding produced officer. by ex detective. All right, it sounds like I've got the video there, Scotty. Right?
1: Oh, that's right. commercial.
3: Oh, yeah. Always got to have. Always got to have a commercial. Somebody's got to make money off suffering. So John Bung convicted in this August 1991 killing based on tainted evidence produced by ex detective Louis Scarcella. Remember that name, Louis Scarsella, because there are dozens of cases like this. Turned angry Tuesday as prosecutors Announced that they would not retry his case They won't admit I'm an Innocent man said the emotional Bun now 41 as he Clutched the hands of his lawyers in The Brooklyn courtroom y'all had the Wrong man this whole time And you have someone Out there running free and you Had no right to do what you did is what he said You can check the video out for Yourself on new abolitionist radio Uh, it'll be available there for you to hear it in its own words. And you know, I was a little surprised about this particular story. And by the way, welcome to Freedom, my brother Dr. Buck. But I was a little surprised because this story seems to be one of the most popular ones we've ever put on New Abolitionist Radio. It's already got uh, a couple thousand shares. So I'm glad that it touched people. I just hope you realize how
1: often. Where is Scarcella right now?
3: Uh, I can't say for sure.
1: Certainly not where he needs
3: to be. Ain't that the truth? <clears throat> Ain't that the truth? Not where he needs to be. Where he needs to be is in the same place that he sent so many young boys who we forced into false confessions. And that brings us to our final segment, which will be our abolitionist in profile, who is Levi Coffin. Um, Otis, would you like to do with the abolitionist in profile?
1: old is muted. Just
3: put the link in the chat room if you're interested. Would, would you like to do the abolitionist in profile this week? I just put the link in the chat room. you.
4: I'm sorry. I just didn't unmute myself. I did want to say that that, that police officer is probably the same place that the uh, prosecutor from that What Blood on Empire that we did. He's probably somewhere vacationing and retired, still getting a fat check. Yes, I did hear that he is
3: uh, collecting his uh, retirement uh, money still, still collecting his retirement money.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, Levi Coffin was an important figure in the Underground Railroad network that helped thousands of fugitive slaves escape to freedom in the years before the American Civil War. Coffin was born on October 28, 1798, in North Carolina. He was a member of a society of friends. Due to his religious beliefs, he became a strong opponent of African-American slavery. By the time he turned 15, Coffin already had begun to assist fugitive slaves. In 1826, he moved to Indiana and established a pork processing business. In 1847, Coffin moved to Cincinnati. With the aid of abolitionists in Indiana, he opened a business that sold only goods produced by free labor. He also became an active participant in the Underground Railroad, it purportedly helped more than 3,000 slaves escape from their masters and gain their freedom in Canada. Most northern states had either outlawed slavery or implemented laws to gradually end the institution. However, the United States Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 permitted southern slave owners to go to free states like Ohio and reclaim their fugitive slaves. For this reason, the sponsors of the Underground Railroad maintained safe houses in free states as well as slave states to protect African Americans. Many former slaves went to Canada where southern slave owners did not have the legal right to retrieve them. Coffin's active participation in the Underground Railroad caused his fellow abolitionists to nickname him the president of the Underground Railroad. Levi Coffin helped African Americans in other ways as well, in 1854, he helped found an African-American orphanage in Cincinnati. He also pressured the federal government during the Civil War to establish the Freedmen's Bureau. In addition, Coffin helped African-Americans establish their own businesses and obtain educational opportunities. He died on September 16, 16th, 1877 in Cincinnati. Several years after his death, African-Americans in Cincinnati erected a monument over Coffin's grave, to honor his contributions, I think didn't you visit that when you were up in Ohio area? Yes, I, I have visited I that
3: soon. specific low location. Well, let us say here from New Abolitionist Radio, salute to Levi Coffin. Salute, salute. We need so many people more more people like that who think like that. Remember what you just said. He he was this a man who decided he his goods would be only created by free people no slaves would be creating the goods that he managed and here in today's society you can't go to a supermarket or fast food restaurant or any damn where you can't buy insurance online you can't drive through a toll booth without somehow it being connected to prison slave labor you know, I, I like my McDonald's french fries. I always loved McDonald's french fries. When I was a young man, I used to stop at McDonald's just to get the french fries before I go to work because I love the french fries. You can't get me no french fries now because I don't deal with any company that uses prison slave labor. And I went to McDonald's and explained to the management why, uh, what what it is that they're involved with and why they should care.
4: So yeah, man, we need more thinkers like that finding ways to end this. And Max. He made that decision at an early age, by the time he turned 15. So they, they said the brain doesn't, well, you don't mature until you're what, 25 or 26? This commitment is 15, at the age of 15. So it can't be that complicated.
3: It's Yeah, it's not that complicated at all, at all. It just requires a change of your perspective of what you're dealing with. Once you realize that you're dealing with a crime against humanity, you stop thinking about trying to fix it and you start thinking about trying to end it. That's the big difference, you know? And that is uh, the problem that we're having today. We have these competing narratives that this is either a mistake done over time by people who had good intentions, but didn't realize how things was turned out or people who knew exactly what they were doing and were committing crimes against humanity and taking the risk because they felt comfortable enough to do it. A.K.A. like the Clintons, for instance, A.K.A. like Ronald Reagan, for instance, uh, A.K.A. like anybody that has made a dime off of prison industries through stocks and investments.
4: Some Some of the list of four or five years old, but I don't I don't think it's probably at least six out of 10 of legislators that have been elected over the last 20 years all on prison stock. I mean, I I started doing it when I first started following y'all almost six years ago, and I know that many of them have come and gone, and they were major stockholders in prison stock, so they know what's going on.
3: Absolutely. Speaking of, man, we were only uh, a few weeks away from June 13th, which will be uh, the beginning of our seventh year and uh, our anniversary here on New Abolitionist Radio. I was wondering if we should do something special, man. I mean, that's a that's a huge accomplishment. For us to be here doing this about this one topic every week and making so many incredible changes using the butterfly effect, uh, just I, by getting I, the information out there.
1: I'm I mean yeah, I mean we have been on air for a while, man, but in terms of doing something special I don't know except for just do the show you know what I'm saying well and, and I mean invite, the way we might invite, the show uh, invite like certain that. guests in
3: yeah that's a good idea bring in some previous guests and just chat about the history of abolition here uh, coming out of new abolitionist radio and throughout history
1: yeah past guests past hosts um, but I do have a quick question before we close out Max um, I share, I tagged you on Twitter about a day or two ago from this website, Blacktivity, I think is how it's described, it's supposed to target black people, and it was citing a Newsweek article saying that the current movement to end prison slavery via the 13th Amendment started this year. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that? I saw you shared that was among some of the articles. That just tickled my my you know funny bone when I read that. And I I let them know wait a minute. No, this current movement to end slavery started six seven years ago on New Abolitionist Radio. <laughs> Nobody was talking about the Thirteenth Amendment at the time that we were. Everybody was talking about you know um, the new Jim Crow and in mass incarceration.
3: <laughs> right. Right, you're
4: absolutely right. I I think I've told you several times there there are several big time pundits that have blocked me since I started following y'all, because that's what I use Twitter for. I would tag them repeatedly in articles that Max and you were putting up. When I see them say something about uh, starting something to stop slavery, I'm saying, wait a minute, there's already a movement going on with that. Where are you? You could Google it. And I, sometimes I do a Google search and pull up Black Talk Radio in the Google search and put that or tag that to the tweet. So I know some of these people know what's going on, but egos are, uh, sometimes stop people from doing the right thing. I'll put it that way. I'll be diplomatic.
3: Yes. Yeah.
4: It's, man, in these last couple of minutes, I want to give a,
3: another shout out to... Uh, Swift Justice and Aisha Jones, a couple who are working together with Unheard Voices at the Free Alabama Movement, and just to see what they do uh, out there, like especially Swift, because Swift is inside a freaking prison, and he puts a lot of activists outside of prisons to shame with the efforts that he does on an educational level, on an agitation level, and in reaching out to prospective legislators to get their opinions on the 13th Amendment and modern-day slavery. I'm reading right now. You sent me to the Twitter, there, Scotty, and I, it just popped up in front of me. Unheard voices of OTCJ, Laura for Alabama. There's a, uh, apparently somebody's running for office by the name of Laura K. Morrow, and they said, "What's your opinion on the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution exception clause and state constitution Article One, Section 32?" Question mark. And Laura K. replied, "Both constitutions prohibit slavery and voluntary servitude." except as punishment for a duly convicted crime. The wording is slightly different in each. As a citizen and as a candidate, I support both constitutions. As a candidate, I would only have a voice in Alabama discussions. Now she answered, that's good. She answered wrong. That's bad. But they got her to answer. And they've been doing that regularly out there, just like Scotty does, like Otis does, and like many others do. When Frederick Douglass was asked on his dying Uh, deathbed what is it that we can keep doing in order to keep the fight alive he answered agitate 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 and that's what we're good at here on new abolitionist radio and we support agitators and there is nowhere in america right now as martin luther king has quoted where anyone can be seen as an outside agitator within the borders of this nation all right well we're here uh, five minutes for the program I guess we could take it out. Uh, any final comments from you, Otis? And let me say, first of all, thank you for stepping in today. Uh, I knew I could count on you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Otis. Well,
4: my, my honor to step in. All I can say to you is I keep trying to find a way to make people get the basics. I, I'm all real, almost reminded of going back to when I had to teach my son his ABCs. It's not that complicated. It may take repetition and repetition, but most adults are too averse to understanding they've been taught wrong. Slavery never ended, an exception clause makes it legal, and the majority of the problems in this country are grounded in the 13th. They can take your loved ones away. It doesn't have to be for a cause. They just have to be duly convicted.
3: It doesn't it. mean they're guilty. Amen. Thanks again, Otis. Appreciate that. Scotty, I know you have very little uh, use of your voice at the moment, but would you might like to make a final comment for the evening?
1: No, I just want to thank Otis again for stepping in for me on short notices. I try to say my voice and not lose it completely, but I want to thank everyone who called in and who's tuned in to New Abolitionist Radio and helping to spread the word about this abolitionist movement. Thanks.
3: All right, Scotty. Indeed. I'm looking forward to our anniversary, and I like your idea of bringing in former guests and just having a big discussion and celebration of uh, just this program in itself. It has made such a difference in this society and even globally. Uh, I just want to quote something from the president of the United States of America. He said, these aren't people. These are animals. When you're a world leader dehumanizing people, it's time for you to stop being president before a genocide occurs. Those aren't opinions, they are marching orders and target identification. And it's a reason to remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Until next week, peace.
2: Rise up. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up See the signs of the times if it's time Rise rise up, rise up When death and hell dwell among all God's people When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing Rise up, when famine claims millions When justice
5: gives blind